0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls podcast. The only podcast, much like my game, teaches are much better the second time around. I'm your host this evening, Mr. Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Jacob Klopfenstein. Jake, how are you doing tonight? Doing wonderfully, my man. How are you?
1: I'm well, thank you. I hear that you had a a Mark teach, which is something that our local community we often uh, describe. Why don't you tell the the listeners what the Mark Teach
0: is? (laughs) Uh, I I pride myself quite a bit on really giving a rock solid game teach. And um, I find that, like many things, the second time is the best one. The first time I'm just kind of sort of getting the script down in my brain. It's a dress rehearsal. And the second time goes a lot better. And uh, that's kind of confounded by the fact if I haven't taught a game in a couple minutes and especially too, like, I find I can't teach a game if I have never taught a game before. I know that sounds kind of (laughs) <laughs> circular in nature. Right. But like if I've played a game a bunch of times, I can't teach it unless I specifically make a point of learning to teach it. It's very strange. You no, know, I'm
1: in the same way. Because if I actually learn a game just from the rule book and think I know how to play it, I get myself in huge issues because I don't actually know what the game actually entails. I like think I do, but until I actually like multi hand solo the game or like try to explain it in some way, can't do it. But yeah, it's it's hard. This hobby is a shared experience hobby hmm. But not everybody reads the rules. I hear that in war game circles, it's very common. So maybe we should just be war gamers and everybody read the rules before they start.
0: Like you think about D&D, it's pretty rare that you have somebody that just sits down at the table and goes, all right, let's play D&D. What's this about?
1: Right. You, you, there, there's some there's some shared knowledge pool shared around it. I'm happy to hear that you guys got some gameplay this week. Regrettably, I actually missed out on games again um, for reasons we will explain later in the show. So, I know. Boo, we missed you. I know. It would have been great, but I promise this week I am in and raring to go. So why don't we start off? We have a couple of cool Kickstarters arriving, I think, this week.
0: Oh, I know. From what I hear, we have a lot to look forward to. Our Kickstarters for both 18 Chesapeake by All Aboard Games and uh, 1817 18 Mexico are both coming as well. Yeah, it's And great. the early returns and the pictures we've seen online is they are absolutely gorgeous. And our man Scott Peterson hit it out of the park at a boy, Scott. Yeah, I've I've seen some of the pre-production ones. They look awesome. I just can't wait to get them in
1: person. I don't know why I'm so excited about it because it's not like we're gonna be playing these anytime soon. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean I'm probably going set them up, show them to Anna, and she'll be like, oh neat. I'll stick her the tokens <laughs> and then <laughs> proceed to no longer do
0: anything with them because we are quarantined, my friend. I will stack them up next to my other all aboard games in my closet and go old new <laughs> old new new art look at these get rid old. of those new. plain white boxes man
1: we're onto the future <laughs> what is funny i was rearranging my collection recently and i should probably post this on instagram once they actually arrive the all board game one but i think about a fifth of my collection by box space by like box volume is 18xx games now
0: okay we gotta talk about you falling off the hipster cliff this week yeah i've gotten crazy dude in what in, in in what in what degree of hipsterism do you mean? Yours and mine truly, our local gaming mogul uh, fan club members here have a deep love for all things Japanese gaming wise and all things eighteen XX wise. So I guess I ought not to be that surprised by the fact that you uh, <laughs> went hog wild on buying Japanese eighteen XX games. Well, I have yet to buy
1: them, but I did some research on a handful of like game kits that you can buy from Japan eighteen NK eighteen SY and a couple other ones. So I shot an email to a board game company over there that was suggested on who you go through and they kindly responded back. Yeah, we'd love to send you some once this whole pandemic thing's over. So should have about like three or four titles coming to me in a while. So, well, I don't know if they're good or not, but going up with the hipsterism and 18xx collecting fanboyism kind of all falls and falls in line, you know? Do I get to like pokeball out your six train? I think so. I think you get a pokeball out. There's some Gundams featured in it, some Gunpla. (laughs) Some anime Naruto's in it for some weird reason, you know. Yeah, you don't get the D train, you get the chungus. There you go, you get the big chungus. All right. Well, that was our train weirdness. Why don't we talk about what we played this week? Which looking at your list is freaking ridiculous, dude. I have no idea how you were able to play this many games in just a week. This is 95% of
0: it is what you've played this week. I played one game, so why don't we hit it off? I have to confess, it is a bit more than a week, being that it's been a bit more than a week since we recorded. So it's, it's a week and change. It's still pretty good, though. It is. So, first one, being that we're kind of on the uh, hipster Japanese freight train right now, or uh, the hipster Japanese airship, as they say, is I got a chance to pick up a game that I picked up about 30 seconds before the uh, <laughs> the quarantine hit. It's a recent Seaman release called, or come on release, called Airship City by Masaki Suga and Analog Lunchbox and slash come on games here in the US. Airship City is a game that was eh, a couple years old, published out of Japan. I don't have an exact published date, but ostensibly it's kind of in the same family as both Indonesia and Yokohama. Both games that we are Istanbul, mighty big fans I of. I think so. I don't think you meant Indonesia. Now, let me try
1: that again. I mean, no, I think you should keep it in because I like Indonesia a lot.
0: <laughs> this game has if you if you buy this game. In fact, I'm leaving this in. Ha! There you go. Uh, if you buy this game thinking it's going to be like Indonesia, you're going to be sorely disappointed. But if you buy this game thinking it's going to be like Istanbul, my friend, you're in for a treat. Which are
1: games that we really like. At least uh, I know you like Istanbul. I've yet to play Istanbul, but I'm sure I'll like it. And we both very much like Yokohama.
0: So both of these games have a kind of a variable table setup where you've got locations that you're moving your workers around to to do what I'd almost charitably describe as pick up and deliver. <laughs> there's a component to that, right? Because you're you're trying to get a bunch of stuff to fulfill contracts at different locations. Right. And as as you do those things, there's various goals around the table. Istanbul is very similar and earlier than Yokohama, but lighter than Yokohama. Like you can play a game of Istanbul in 60 minutes or so without too much trouble. It's it's really a race to get a number of rubies and end the game as quickly as possible. Yokohama is kind of the heavier weight, longer, point saladier version of that game, I would say, with more diverse routes to victory. Gotcha. Airship City, on the other hand, takes that same basic theme where you've got a variety of areas that you can go to and a number of workers that you can travel around and puts a really thinky twist on top of it. The thinky twist being that this is a whole city that's made up of big, giant airships, like there's a town hall airship and there's a mine airship and there's a hangar airship And these, instead of just sitting in a fixed grid like they do on both Yokohama and Istanbul, they float around and they bump around. So one of the actions you can do is actually cause a row or column to shift and move its location relative to where you're at before you move. So there might be a location on the far side of the board that you can't get to. But, you know, if I spend one of my actions to just bump it around the far side and back around to my edge, well, now it's right next door. Oh, and I also completely hosed the other person that was trying to move their next turn. That's a really interesting angle on the whole thing. Right. Well, and that seems like a good way to
1: push back on these games, saying that they're very multiplayer solitaire, because really the only way you can get in somebody's way in um, Yokohama is by being physically in their way. You know, you can be at the spot they want to go to. But instead, if you can now rearrange the whole tiles, now they can't get there on the path they've been
0: laying down for a handful of turns, that I'm sure will change the game and make it much more interactive. Oh, definitely. And the other major point of interaction in the game is that one of the big goals of the game is you're trying to build airships, as you would kind of guess by the name. And as you build airships, they do a couple of things for you. You can either donate them to the city, which gives you a power up, like instead of getting three resources at something, you might get four resources instead, or it reduces the cost at a different location, or um, it has some boon to you if you donate it to the city. The other thing you can do is you can just straight up sell that airship, and it's a variable market that. When you sell it, the price just drops on everybody else's airship. So oh, wow. that person that's trying to get money by selling airships, uh, you can torpedo the market right before they get there. Now, it's it's a one-way market. There's no way for it to go back up. But the more airships you sell, the lower the price gets. So there's definitely a build the airships first and sell them before other people can race. Gotcha. That's really neat. Yeah, I'm, I'm always interested in this one, and I would like to correct for the listeners. I
1: don't think you're that hipster because... I think it'd be real hipster to own the original Japanese version of this. This is like when Urban Outfitters gets their hands on it. It's like still (laughs) hip, but not as hipster. It's been backpacked.
0: Is there a company less hipster than
1: Come On? I don't know. I mean, they're so normie, but they're also kind of weird because they make their own stuff. I don't know. It's so weird. The games that CMON or Come On, whatever the heck you're supposed to say, I'm going to say CMON. Uh, I think it's um, officially come on now. It, it, it which, hurts
0: me to say, too,
1: which <laughs> is why say I'm CIMON, saying, it, but it's CIMON, come on, which is why I'm saying it's Cmon. I'm going to intentionally pronounce it wrong just to bother them. And uh, I think their whole line of games outside of their like mini Eric Lang kind of thing. They're really interesting games like they released Newton, which was apparently a really good Euro. They released Lorenzo at Benifico. They released this game. It's just like a kind of well, oh, grizzled the grizzled, too. Yeah, it's just like a weird collection of games outside of their main thing. Oh, ethnos, too. They released. Ethnos. Yeah. Yeah, true. I I can't think of a company that I have a more polarized opinion on their product. Right. But it's also not like a monolith. Every single time they release a game, I have to like reassess it from their own (laughs) standpoint. I I can't quite carry any amount of uh, of forethought between product
0: to product. So anyway, well, that's awesome. I'm happy that you played it. Um, Did the family like it? Yeah, it was a huge hit across the board. Plays in about the same length as Yokohama, I would say. Um, It was it was shockingly thinky. Like, This might be the heaviest of those three games, which Yokohama is fairly heavy, like it's not as fiddly, but it's harder to make decisions on because at the end of the game, we were literally like only halfway up all these tracks looking at it going, did we really just suck that bad at the game or did we do something wrong? I think we just sucked at it, which to me, that's a feature, not a bug. Oh, 100%. Anytime that I play a game
1: and they say, I feel at the end, oh my god, I did so poorly, I want to play it again, that's a sign of a good game. I hate games where about halfway through, I feel like I played it pretty well, or at least got like 80 or 90% of the way there.
0: I also think I could teach this game in shorter time than either Yokohama or Istanbul, which is also a big plus. Huge. Well, once this thing
1: actually fades away, or if there's a decent version of it on TTS, I would love to play it sometime.
0: Mogul scale-wise... Mm, I think we're probably it's probably a three C plus, maybe a two C plus, somewhere in that zip code. So it, it it definitely it punches above its weight. I think that's the message I want to send: is that the amount of strategy and the amount of decisions relative to the rules overhead is very much in the side of the equation that we enjoy. Gotcha, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to play. I'll be fun. Excellent. That's Airship City by Masaki Suga Suga Suga. Sure, and come on. You're in the U.S. Perfect. So I did lie to the
1: listeners when I said I only played one game. I played two games, one of them being online. Why don't we talk about it? Yeah, we played that one together. We certainly did. We played 18CZ for the, I think it's the Czech lands in by Mm -hmm. designed by Lonnie Orgler and published by Fox in the Box. So this is one of the first, I think, Kickstarter 18xx games. And I'm speaking like there's been a thousand of them. There's been like four, but this was the first one. And uh, it was interesting. We
0: played it online. What did you think of it, Mark? So it's interesting. I I, I was the one that actually suggested we play 18CZ because we this was one of the very first 18XXs that I played back when I was just getting into it. Uh, The first game I played was 1846 and not very long after that, we played 18CZ. And very clearly, I did not understand how this all works (laughs) at all, because I think we maybe bought like one private or something like that when we did it. And I, I really had no memory on how this game would actually go or how it should be played. So I was kind of excited to play it again. Definitely think it was a fun trip down memory lane. And and I was happy to play it again, knowing more about 18xx. And I, I think uh, I'll, I'll lead the conversation into what we thought about it by saying, this is weirder and differenter, differenter, stranger <laughs> than other 18xxs. And definitely more unique than I remember it being. Right, so why don't we tell
1: a little bit of the attributes about it. This game has three different size companies, small, medium, and large, with them being four-share, five-share, and 10-share companies, respectively. Functionally, there is one train deck, but every card is three-sided, and each different tier of company, each different size, kind of runs different trains. So the smallest ones, they run regular trains. The medium-sized runs, they run plus trains. So like if it's a three plus three train, you get it three cities and three towns. And then finally, the big boy 10-share companies, they run express trains. It's a 1D stock market, but there's like a half step up and down. But the other thing that's kind of interesting about this game is there is acquisitions of the smaller companies in this game, where you can actually purchase the amount of outstanding shares based on the current market price by a larger company. So there's some little bits of that in it. There's also some conversion at that time. And the final weird thing about it is there's a fixed number of stock rounds and operating rounds. There is just always going to be, I can't remember how many it is, but maybe it's like six or seven stock rounds. And then after each one, there's either one, two, or three operating rounds. It's, 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 it is it's 100% on rails. I found the gameplay interesting. It was fun going back in memory lane because we have not played this game for a while. But I kept on waffling back and forward on whether or not I thought this game was actually good or not.
0: I think that we definitely had to kind of unlearn some of our ideas on how 18xx games should go, because this game definitely does not work like that. No. How you do well in this game, if you played it like other games, I can definitely see where it would come off kind of boring, kind of vanilla and sort of mechanical. I think the real conceit to this game is the notion of small, medium, large and how you manage that. So there are small, medium, large companies. There are small, medium, large privates. There are small, medium, large trains. And at a really high level, each company can own something that is either their size or smaller. So a medium company can own a medium private and a medium train or a small company and a small train and a small private. They can only run trains of their own size. So you can sell a small train to a big company to move money around, but that big company can't use it. It can only just hold it till later. Likewise, too, when you acquire a smaller company, you acquire its assets, and if you do that the timing on that correctly, you can actually convert those assets up into your type of train, which may cause them to last a little bit longer. And I think the management of that, how you use small, medium and large to get money into the company and then transfer the assets up into a large company that can run for a lot is a key to how you be successful in this game and derive maximum enjoyment out of it.
1: Sure. My main complaint, and I agree with that, I I, I will say that, yes, that is most likely how you're supposed to drive enjoyment from this game is timing that. My complaint with the game then follows from the question of, okay, well, we've expressed that the conceit in this game is capital management and company management at what certain times you start games. But the thing that sucks about this game is the pacing of the ORs and SRs is fixed. So... The whole fun thing about this is the managing of what companies you own at what time. So all you do is then have a fixed company with kind of playing like like there's no variability in the 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 length of the game. There's variability in the length of the train roster, but in actually how like the ORs go, you really just have to time it correctly. Like I I don't know if there's lot, much gainsmanship to be had about when to actually strike with each different thing because it's just a fixed order
0: and SR operation. You know, there's probably a way to game out the disparity between how many ORs there are and what trains are available. So like, let me give you an example. Let's say we're in a case where there's only a couple of ORs per turn and we're still pretty early in the game. There's only one or two ORs yet. I have enough money that we've pushed trains and now suddenly I'm sitting with a, you know, a five train and everybody else is sitting on two trains because it's still pretty early in the game. And because of the small number of ORs, that small company just can't generate enough money to do anything interesting by the next stock round. So there might be a way to just handle that disparity between train size and number of ORs that we probably hadn't noticed when we played it. Yeah, maybe. And it also felt like we weren't to the two OR
1: aspect of it. I think only the last set is actually a three OR set. I think you're right, yeah. But we weren't to this set of two ORs until like it felt like really late in the game. Like I think we had already started medium sized companies and it was fine. I I don't know. I agree with your sentiment that the, the, the fun out of this game does not come from traditional 18xx truisms. But I can also just say, hey, I like that. And I don't quite enjoy what CZ has to offer. I can't
0: think of any off the tip of my head, but there are definitely other games out there that have a uh, fixed ORSR calendar, if you will, isn't there? I'm sure there is.
1: 21 Moon does. Um, There's some that have a certain limited amount of like game end things. So like 62 has that. But from my understanding, at least from what I've played, the only ones that I've played that have a completely fixed ORSR progression are trying to think. Yeah, I think the only one that I've played is CZ. Hmm. And 21 Moon that I'm playing one right now. But that's sure. That's like still in beta testing. So don't know if that one quite applies.
0: Net net is it ended up being a little bit more of a hmm, ended up being a little bit more of a standoff towards the end than any of us thought it would be like there's there was various times throughout the point of the game. We all thought we had it won and lost and it came down to a pretty small margin of victory at the at the very end and quite a bit closer than we thought it was. Now, that could also be due to the fact that everything was somewhat flat. Yeah, that's another
1: complaint about the game is the map is just so flat. It seems like you can hijack routes so easily. And there's a lot of tokens, but you really want to spend money on trains and acquisitions in this game. So unless maybe I'm missing something and there's like strategic withholdings I should be doing more of, it seemed like there wasn't a lot of money in the game.
0: I think you nailed a big part of it right there. I think that as a as a gameplay, we did not do tokens anywhere near aggressively enough because you like as you're acquiring companies upwards small companies and medium companies into big companies all their tokens come along with it so theoretically your big company could have just a pile of tokens now it takes money to plop those things out on the board but I think if a company's a little richer and can plop some early tokens out that smaller company can fall in the have-not pile pretty quickly and not be able to fight back with tokens right and maybe that's the thing is maybe that's what we should have
1: done but I don't know I'm unsure. I'll happily play it again. Um, I didn't hate the experience that much, but I definitely do not consider it one of my favorite 18xx games, to say the least.
0: I do think too playing it in person is probably going to be a better experience just because of the management of the multi sided train cards. It got a little confusing trying to manage on a spreadsheet on the oh, wait a minute, that thing is not a four train, it's actually a two plus two train. Wait, what is that thing? Yeah, it was hard. We had to we shouldn't even explain it, but it was it was annoying.
1: To, to say the least. I'm, I'm not going to get rid of my copy. I'm fine having it, but it's not what I'm really going to try to steer to online that often.
0: If I'm in a corner and I'm going to try to play 18xx two-player, CZ definitely has the most interesting two-player mechanic out there. It has a robo third player called Vaklav that both players take turn controlling, and Vaklav can be used as a weapon for sure to whack the other guy over the head to like use it to tragic track the other guy's company and tra- token out places. And that's a very interesting way to fight over a two-player game.
1: Well, plus you can invest in Vaklav.
0: So maybe yes, starting a company is the most profitable thing, depending on Vaklav's
1: positioning, but then who gets to run it? It's 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 neat. I, I really like that as well. There's also a couple of variants included in the box that I'd like to try. One's supposed to be like a teaching game, like really simple with just like one size company. So We'll see. Um, I agree. I I think in person, it's probably the best way to do it. And of the in-person experiences that you can have with CZ, I think
0: two players probably the best. So Indeed. That's 18CZ, Lonnie Orgler, published by Fox in the Box here in the U.S. and elsewhere. Next up, I had a chance over on our Wednesday night game group, one of them that you recently missed, Jake, to pull out a game that was really, really, really highly thought of in 2019. That is Peter McPherson's Tiny Towns, published by AEG. Tiny towns is just a, as it as it sounds like it's a very small town building exercise. You've got like a uh, five by five grid and every turn, whoever's turn it is, calls out a resource and everybody has to take one of those resources and place it in some and one of the squares in their town. Okay. When the placed resources on your five by five grid match up with one of the blueprints of a building out on the table. You lift off those resources and you place that building on one of the spaces that your resources occupied. So like you might have like brick, brick, glass, brick in a L-shaped pattern on there. And that forms the blueprint for building a house. So when you complete that, you remove the, bl- the brick, brick, glass, brick, and you put a house logo on one of those four spots. And each one of those types of buildings has different scoring things around with it. Like a house scores three points if it's next door to a milling factory or something like that. Or a bakery, I think, is what it is, and a bakery scores points if it's next door to a flour mill, and the <laughs> and so on and so forth. And like the factories, uh, you lose points if your house is next door to a factory. And sort of a lot of those town building tropes. Problem is, you don't have control every turn over what resources you're getting, and once you place things, they're permanent. So you might really, really, really need one glass to complete the church that you're trying to build. Yet somebody else is out there just calling wheat, wheat, wheat. And when your board is complete and you can't put anything else out there, you're just done, even if other people aren't. So if other people are smarter about managing it, they remove extra buildings and have more spaces to build stuff out. It plays out in about 45 minutes. And uh, wow, I heard a lot of grumbling around the table about how much this was hurting people's brains. See, I really like games like that where it's just kind
1: of little efficiency puzzles where you're kind of bothering other people, but trying to make sure that you do it the best. I've actually had my mind on this one for a lot. I've been trying to have Dennis teach it to us, but... Maybe I'll have to come on Wednesday and uh, see if they can get us to teach me that, because I, I, it sounds really fun, and the presentation looked beautiful on it. I'm happy to hear you yeah. liked it, right? You, you you did enjoy this game, right? I quite enjoy this one, yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. How did it feel like that other cube stacking spatial relation one that we played? I can't remember the name of it. Town Center? Town Center, yeah. Is there any viable comparison between the two whatsoever, or am <sighs> I just greasing? You grasping know, for straws um, here
0: city building the way you do it is really different like the, the neat part about town center is how things organically grow and it's drafting people up pieces out there so other than the fact you're in a small grid and you're trying to build the best city not really i would say that this has much more in common with five by five city gotcha okay so that's really the best comparison which i don't think you've played five by five city yet either have you no i have not go go city or whatever go go city i think yeah because uh, five is go in japan so yeah, I, I would say that the two of those have more in common than Tiny Towns and Town Center do. Gotcha. Well, I'm excited to play. I quite like this one. I pretty much taught you the entire game right there. And like I said, it plays out in half hour, 45 minutes, and I think it plays up to six, too. So there's a you know nice play group. It's kind of the perfect thinky filler for that one hour spot, which is exactly what we used because we had somebody joining at seven o'clock.
1: Awesome. Well, it sounds like a great evening. I wish I would have been there.
0: I'm going to call this one actually a one C on the mogul scale. Wow, that's a big might disparity. be a one might be a one B. I might be overthinking the strategic aspect of it. Maybe it's a one B, but it's a it's a super quick teach, and there's definitely more thinking to it than there is actual rules overhead. Gotcha. Well, that's awesome. Okay. I've I've heard nothing but good things.
1: It seems to have a good production. I'm just excited to actually play it sometime. Maybe maybe on TTS this upcoming week.
0: Yeah, I like this one and. Bit of a mark teach. I've only played it one other time and I never actually bothered to learn the rules. So I was kind of cold teaching this one out of the manual, but it's such an easy game. I I was up to the challenge. (laughs) Gotcha. All right. Well, speaking of games that take no teach, I will talk
1: about the one other game I played this week. I played Crokinole. So my wife and I have left the Crokinole board set up and been playing a whole bunch. I have no new things to bring up. My wife is still very bad at it and I'm much better at it than her, but she's my only opponent I have. So I have no real choice. My real discussion I was going to have with you, Mark, is I'm debating on buying a more fancy board. And I saw that you recently got one. I've yet to play your fancy board because you got it around Christmas time. Or maybe was it for your birthday? No, it was my birthday at the end of February. Gotcha. And that's right before everything happened with the lockdown. So two weeks later, we couldn't see each other. So my board, which I do like, is kind of budget and does not play the same way that the really nice waxed and and gliss powdered boards play. And I kind of.
0: I really want it. I I, I don't know. Jake, I I 100% believe that if you had a higher end board, you would get value out of it because you've played the daylights out of that board that you've had so far. Plus, I don't think you'd have any trouble selling that to somebody in our group. If you put it up, if you put it out there, like I can see Stephen buying this or somebody else in our group picking it up pretty quickly or heck, leave it up at the cabin. Yeah, and I'm thinking about doing it just because and for those who don't know,
1: I have the what's it called? Lee Valley tools one, which is a fine board, but it's just not as slick as the new ones are That or not the new ones, the more like craft ones are, and they're not as lacquered. And then I also don't have gliss powder. And maybe I should first try it with the like crokinole powder before I go trading up for a nicer board and see how much that actually changed the change the gameplay. But I played the fancier boards at PAX Unplugged and it was a completely like different game. It, w- it felt a lot more like shuffleboard compared to like air hockey compared to ours, which is still really fun, but it kind of feels like a board game flicking game. You know, doesn't have that glide to it, if you will.
0: Oh, yeah. My my board all gliss powdered up with rubber posts in the middle. Like you get that air hockey thing going like crazy that if you are uh, put a little extra mustard on that shot, you're going to get three or four bounces off the center and you're going to end up bonking all your stuff out of the middle in the process. Gotcha. Where'd you get your board from? You know, I just found it on Etsy. And uh, I I actually have no idea who the manufacturer of it is. I have it someplace, but uh, it was ordered from Canada. Surprise. And uh, I just, I found it on Etsy. I'll I'll look into it. But if any
1: listeners have some recommendations for the nice boards, I know Muzzies used to be one on Crokinoleboards.com. I think it's one as well. So I'll look into it, but I've been playing a whole bunch of it, which has been really fun. My wife actually doesn't like to play it with me. It's more of a favor because... She just gets smoked. I don't know why she got so bad at it, but I just destroy her. It usually takes about two games to get to one hundred now. We do it differently. We usually play best of five or best of seven. Oh, best of five to seven, or each round is a best of, or do you play to a hundred five times? Nope, we don't. We don't. We you, you, you shoot your disc, and whoever has the highest score gets a point. Oh, gotcha. And just best of five. I've heard there's some tournament scoring like that as well. Um, yeah, like that's exactly like, how they work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where it's more just like whoever has the more points gets like twenty or something. I can't remember the specifics, but. Something along those right. lines.
0: Right. So we don't bother. Like, there's no there's no case where you get behind way, way, way behind because you have a bad game. Somebody just gets all their stuff in the wrong place. Worst you lose is a point and then you can come back the next one. And it I, I find oftentimes we're at the rubber match for best of five. Gotcha. Well,
1: it's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely in the bo- in the in the in the market for a newer board because Krogan so fun. And if you never tried it, try to play somebody else's board before you commit to like a $200
0: thing. But man, it is cool know what I tried last night, Jake? What was that? I played Crokinole on Tabletop Simulator. How did that go? Better than you think. <laughs> yeah, there's the flicking. There's the flicking, right? There's a whole it flicking It works better mechanism. than you think right? it does. It's shocking. I, I actually, our, our former guest, Dan Thoreau, actually claimed that uh, this got, I believe it was Dan that was talking about how he wasn't really into Tabletop Simulator and somebody got him to play Crokinole on Tabletop Simulator and he went, oh, dang, this is cool and got hooked on it after that. That's hilarious. Cool. Well that that's that's great that they actually have that as a thing. I mean, it makes sense.
1: I mean, it's just flicking, right? It's a physics-based thing. All you have to do is make the things work and weigh right, right? And then you just the flicking, there is a flicking mechanism in that game, right? It's
0: we crazy. spend so much time complaining about the physics in tabletop simulator. And then you play a game like that and you go, Oh. The physics <laughs> are great.
1: It's a this is the reason it. why it's good, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's shockingly good. So if you're a tabletop simulator guy like a lot of us are in this epidemic. Man, try out Crokinole. It's uh it's more fun than you think it would be. That's probably a great way to try it. Just imagine that you're flicking those things by yourself now. So
1: <laughs> without the sore fingernail. There it is. You save you, you you hurt the underside of your finger instead of the top from all that clicking. So <laughs> wonderful. So that's crokinole, man. TTS Crokinole. What else have you
0: been playing this week, Mark? I got a chance to play uh, late last week, one of my favorite in-person card games, Glory to Rome by Ed Carter and Carl Chudick, published by Cambridge Games Factory. What's unique about this play is this is the first time I've had a chance to actually play it at two player. We've always played it big groups of people with all the chaos that ensued and was online with a friend of mine from Atlanta. Hello, Kevin. And he wanted me to teach him how to play Glory to Rome because he owns a black box copy of this game. Actually, and has never and has never played it. I know it's killing me. I'm like, you seriously own a black box copy of Glory to Rome, which is super duper rare. And he's never played it. But yeah, I uh, busted out a teach and we played head to head Glory to Rome. By God, it plays pretty well. That's awesome. So so how is it different compared to the larger things?
1: I would imagine that the pool was much smaller than it normally would have been in a big play.
0: It is. So Glory to Rome, it's a multi-use card, kind of crazy. You, you You play a role and everybody else tries to follow that role and do that role also, or they think, which is basically drawing more cards. Then you go around the table and everybody does that role, whether it's get materials or build buildings or demand other resources from other people with the Legionary card. Or you try to be dishonest and steal from the Republic of Rome and tuck them away in your vault. That's basically the game. And yeah, the big thing we noticed with two players is at the beginning, there was very few choices in the central pool. These are the cards that you could get when you go get materials. But boy, over time, that eventually built up more and more and more to the point that by the end of the game, there was probably a dozen, 15 cards in there to pick from. Wow. Certainly went quicker being two players. We got to the end game condition fairly quickly because it did. It varies the length of the game by number of players because there's less building site cards to use. Okay, and um, you know we still managed to wrap it up in sixty to ninety minutes, maybe. That's awesome. Well, I'm happy to hear that it went so well. What did what did uh, Kevin think of it? Oh, he, he absolutely loved it. I, I I would not be surprised if he's played it with his family members multiple times <laughs> since then. So I'm happy that we were able to uh, get such a unique, rare, and cool game off of his shelf finally.
1: That's awesome. Well, I'm I'm always down to play Glory of Rome. I'm so sad I don't own a copy. I really should just try to track down a copy of Glory to Rome, the black box edition, because it's worth it, I think. I love the game so much. It's one of my favorite small box card games. It'd probably be worth it just to get the real thing.
0: Like I said, knowing that it plays well at two players and is a very interesting game certainly gives it more legs. So that is Glory to Rome by Ed Carter and Carl Chudick and Cambridge Games Factory. Speaking of small box card games, this most recent game night on Wednesday night got a chance to play one of my favorite Oink games, Twins by Reiner Kinesia. I claim that I'm going to pull out an Oink game. And by the way, it's a Reiner Kinesia game. And everybody goes, no, it's not. Everybody forgets Reiner Kinesia has two Oink titles that Oink has republished in Japan, Twins and Modern Art. There it is. Recently played Modern Art. Time to pull out the other one and play Twins and taught our friend Ira in Chicago that on Tabletop Simulator. And I don't have a ton to say about it other than the fact that Made me remember the fact that there's a really cool expansion to this game that varies the order of the hands that come out and uh, varies payout. the game a little bit more. Which is, as I understand, your primary uh, beef with the game. Correct. It's it's so how it
1: always works in Twins now is the first person, whoever is the highest pair first, gets like three dollars. Then whoever is the lowest pays one, whatever. But they change that whole payout every single time now, which is exactly what I'm interested in because then it kind of is when you want to break your big pairs and then it becomes reading the people more instead of just playing the same thing over and over again got yeah, kind of like ritualistic when i played it and i wasn't super jazzed about it but that's cool we really need to print out that thing and cut it if only we had time and weren't seeing people exactly. and i know sitting around I, I home all the just, time.
0: i honestly just forgot about it i got i've got it someplace and i need to just dig it out and print it because it's not it's like a dozen cards or something it's not it's not a huge project when you're staring down look printing out 1828 you know i mean it's a completely different thing
1: you know (laughs) (laughs) the amount of the amount of effort and work there Uh, that project
0: is breaking me (laughs) i'm sure it is so the game we actually played right before twins was a bit of an oldie oldie but a goodie we'll call it that was on request from one of the members of our game group definitely was not what i was considering playing somebody popped out and said hey i saw this on your list and it's been a long time since I've played Castles of Mad King Ludwig by Ted Alsbach and Bezier Games. Castles of Mad King Ludwig, Jeez, what was that published in 10 years ago, Jake? It's I a while. Know. Let's let's check. Yeah. I, I was actually meaning to check that one out too. Castle. Great radio here, right? Listening to us board game geek out stuff. Amazing radio. It was published in 2014. Okay. Some oh. years ago. All right. I pulled up Castles ago. of Burgundy. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Yeah, OK, 2014, right? So it's going on, you know, six years old and stuff like that and fun to play again. It was uh, an easier teach than I remember it being um, and it might be showing its age and itch. So what do you mean
1: by that? So there's been a lot of conversations right now about age in games and progression because all the awards came out and they awarded Wingspan and some people I saw on the Internet attributed this to the mass public of gamers being more interested in lighter weight games. To me, wingspan's not that light because we play Oink games, but it's 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 an interesting thing. And so then that conversation spurred into, well, what does the what has game design
0: progressed? And so hearing you say again, the six years old shows that it's six year old. What do you mean by that? Great question. It's one of those that, and maybe this is just due to the fact that I've been playing it for six years and played it a lot six years ago. It it re- just reminds me of a lot of games that came out at about that time. So. For example, like they've come a long way in writing rule books. Definitely not the best written rule book I've ever seen. It, yeah. um, I, I will say it's short, so it was pretty quick to get through on that one. And it's not a very difficult game to understand. So this was not a, a, a hurdle of any realistic sort. It all seemed a bit glued together, right? Because there's, there's this whole really, really interesting pricing structure, right? Where you have to price all these pieces so that everybody goes around and then picks to what piece to buy. And then they pay the person that did the pricing. And the person who priced it then pays the bank. That part is super duper interesting. Then you actually place the piece and build out your castle. Again, really cool. You make these castles. If you've ever been to any of these castles. It's even cooler. It's even cooler because you're like a lot of those rooms like, oh, I've been to the grotto room. It's really as it's as bizarre as it sounds. And that part's really neat. But then there's this very strange kind of, well, you get some points when you put this down there. And then you get some additional bonus points depending on what it's next to. But then when you put another room by that, you might go back and rescore those other points because now it's by something that it wasn't before. And I find the scoring to be unbelievably fiddly in this game. And like, I, I doubt there's ever been a game of this played where the scoring is 100% correct. I remember, and I haven't
1: played this game in a long time. I don't even know if I've actually recorded a play for this game on BGG because it might have been before I started recording plays. I played it a mm-hmm. handful of times. I'll so probably six to eight times and I would always ask Kirk who was the owner of this game making sure I was doing everything right it was like one of those games where it kind of seemed like I was showing off like look at how good my strategy was but I was just actually just making sure that I knew how to play the game correctly you know because and then also there's these little edge cases where you're like can I fit that piece there is it touching anything else is that door okay
0: and it's not on a hard grid you're just you sort of Kentucky windage it together and you sort of go mm. That hallway might be bent a little bit to make that fit there, but sure. Yeah, but we'll call it good.
1: Good enough. Right. And so I don't know. And maybe we're this is just outing us as being weirdos about the games must be played correctly. But uh, <laughs> it was. Uh, yeah, I, I
0: kind of remember that sentiment as well. The other thing that's a little bit crazy about it is there's this uh, menu of bonuses that you get when you complete a room completing, meaning that all of the exits are connected to something else. And they're all over the place or anything from the, hey, you get 10,000 Deutschmarks, marks or you, you know, maybe you get just to rescore the room or maybe you get another turn. It's all over the place. Like some of the benefits are remarkably non interesting and some of them are absolutely game breaking.
1: Yeah, it's it's it doesn't seem easy. And it seems like the people that win end up doing one of those more than everybody else. And I can't remember the specifics, so I apologize. Probably not great radio. But yeah,
0: I, I feel the same way about it. This is one that, like, it does occupy a nostalgic soft spot in my heart because I did play this a lot six years ago. I've also visited Neuschwanstein Castle and many of Ludwig's other castles many times, and they're some of my favorite places to visit. But having said that, there's maybe better games that do the same thing that have come out since. So that's
1: kind of the question is there's a lot of games, and this, I think, is a perfect example of games that we really liked. But would you do you know anybody that put this in their top 15 games? Hmm. I don't think so. I, I don't know. And I actually did look at BGG to see like the standard distribution of scores of the rates. And it was completely normal is exactly what you would think for this. Like everything was standard around like seven and a half with like a 1.28 standard deviation or something along those lines. But this is an example of a game that was pretty well liked by a lot of people four or five years ago. And since then, it just seems like people don't really talk about it. I don't know. Maybe that's me just being negative about like marketing and stuff and the, the, the progression of the hobby. But I just don't know. It seems like a lot of games are just meh, and this was meh then. We thought it was pretty fun. It was a good way to pass the time, but wasn't an amazing
0: game. And now it's just still pretty meh. Like I said, it fits more of a nostalgic niche. Like Board Game Geek does rank this high. It's 116 overall, which is pretty
1: rare air. Yeah, I I don't know. And maybe I'm just grasping at straws here and trying trying to apply a conversation to something that doesn't fit it. But there's somewhat of a march of the Cult of New, and you hit a certain point where the game's like this old. And you kind of have to decide if it's going to be a game that people really like anymore or not, because there's newer things out there and this game doesn't do anything super crazy, but it's not that inter. I I don't know.
0: Yeah. And I would also say the same thing. And on a much worse case, I also own a copy of Palaces of Mad King Ludwig, which came out two years ago and disappeared nearly instantly, which I thought was a fine game. Uh huh remember the same thing it's just no no it it is this is a weird game with the pricing
1: model it really makes you think about other people's things which doesn't fit into the modern euro i'm just kind of heads downing it so maybe it didn't take over too well but i I don't know and the same thing with suburbia i mean the suburbia collector's edition that thing was the size of freaking a freight truck and (laughs) i haven't really seen anybody else talk about that game since it came out i think it came out a while ago a couple of months like what happened I've definitely never played it or seen anybody play it. I know. And people spend uh, like, like, look up the Kickstarter sometime. And this it's the reason why I bring it up is it's very similar to this game. It has the exact same pricing model thing built into it. Well, and I believe it's by the same designer, correct? It is. And it's a hexagon versus other things. And they m- expanded it to the moon and made it super published. But who likes that? I, d- I just don't see anybody playing it. It's wild. Who are these people that play these
0: games? I know, and I think at the time that Castles of Mad King Ludwig came out, it was kind of billed as being a better suburbia, from what I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, before we wrap this up, I, I do want to say, though, that uh, we we realize we've never actually given this a mogul scale rating. We certainly have not. I think I'm going to put this at a... I'm going to give this a 2C. I think it's a it's a pr- actually a pretty simple rules weight, and you can maybe make an argument for 2B being that really the only decisions in it is where you price things. Having said that, still a fun game. I'll definitely still hang on to it in my collection.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. So here's an interesting stat. Before we move on to normal things, I'll, I'll dive down the weird, weird board game thing about Suburbia. There has been 56 plays of Suburbia's Collector's Edition this month. That seems like a shockingly small number, given how popular that game is. And it came out six months ago, I think. It came out in 2019, and I think it came out late 2019. 56 plays. Let's just
0: compare. Let's just g- give me another game. Lahav, maybe? Sure, which is it's hard to compare those two. Like Lahav is a much thinkier, much heavier game. Let's just see. You can do this on BGG, and right? also much older, much older. There has been 92 plays of Lahav this month.
1: Hmm. So a game that's from 2008 and did not just deliver a recent Kickstarter has been played nearly twice the amount as a game that just got delivered six months ago. Let's do another one. Let's do Wingspan. This is wild, Mark. Maybe this is just a new thing. We're just uncovering board game uh, <laughs> conspiracy <laughs> theories all the time there's been two thousand and five hundred plays of wingspan this month holy smokes yeah
0: people like wingspan how about uh oh ah ah dead of winter look up dead of winter how many places dead of winter had this month also released in 2014 also a very big popular release from that year um i am doing it right now i hope it's zero it's 78
1: plays there you go that's wild I mean, and obviously this is just a weird stat because it's like people who record their games on PGG, right? But it just it seems be interesting to graph all of the plays of a certain game over time and seeing like kind of the life cycle of a board game, at least on yeah. PGS on, on board game geek. So interesting.
0: Well, probably a great time to segue over to the last <laughs> game that I wanted. To, we're going to talk about <laughs> in the games we played. Go. <laughs> this for is it. also an oldie. <laughs> Uh last night, last night, last night, it was last night, I got together with a couple of very old gaming friends of mine and played another 2014 release. Look at that, Jake. See what I did there? <laughs> Guess how many times it's been played this month? Oh goodness. Uh woo, 125. 360. Holy cow. Well, there you go. I mean, Orleans is a desert island game for me, and uh, I think the numbers are proving that out for a lot of other people. Absolutely. I think I just spoiled it, too. We played Orleans last night from 2014. Reiner Stockhausen and yeah, you got to call a Clemens Franz for some of the most iconic Clemens Franz art ever on that one. Yeah, it's the Clemens Franziest of the Clemens Franz art. Pretty much. Yeah, You maybe some of the Uva Rosenberg games would take umbrage with that statement, but uh, it's pretty Clemens Franzy. Yeah, it's amazing. Published by TMG. This is a game that's, uh, like I mentioned, is a desert island game for me. It's a beg. It's the. Progenator of the bag building genre where you get a bunch of workers you put them in the bag and you uh, pull some out every turn and most efficiently put them out there to gain more workers and do more actions it's the first time in a long time that i've played just straight up vanilla orleans without the trade and Intrigue expansion jake what'd you think yeah i saw you pop into the discord and who'd you end up playing with played with my good friend paul from fargo who's kind of my, one of my oldest gaming friends. We used to play uh, thousands and thousands of games of Magic together. And uh, also our friend Sean. It just so happens that the tabletop simulator version that I brought up didn't have trade and intrigue, which I later found a good one with trade and intrigue, so we decided to play just straight-up vanilla Orleans. Good. It, w- it was interesting. I saw a strategy happen last night that I had never actually seen play out before, and it played out to really great effect. I'm pretty good at this game, and I got absolutely crushed. What happened was our friend Sean went very, very aggressively, very early in the game at the Beneficial Deeds Board. Like, I've never seen anybody, like on round two, start culling stuff out on the Beneficial Deeds Board right away. And I kind of was thinking, "Mm, that's not going to work. Sure you want to do that? (laughs) Okay. But I look over and I'm like, Sean, why do you have 54 coins and I only have 20? He goes, (laughs) well, I've been getting four per, you know, three per every time I put one of those things out there. And I look over and now he's got six citizens sitting there also because he's claimed like all of them. So literally every turn, he was just getting a new guy and plopping it out to the beneficial deeds board and just pretty much ignoring the the rest of the, the whole map out there and the moving the buildings out there and moving the guy around the board, just ignoring that completely.
1: If it's not broke, don't fix it, right? It just kept on happening. He kept on winning.
0: Yeah. So that was a crazy different approach to it. And because he went out and did it so vigorously and so early and none of us uh, defended against it. You actually racked up an insurmountable amount of points by doing that. And eh, congratulations. That was one of the weirder strategies I've seen win at that. Gotcha. Yeah, no, it's, that's interesting. And the biggest issue here is I've still, to
1: this day, only played Orleans once.
0: It, it'd be interesting. I would like to hear what you think of it. It is significantly less interactive than you would think it is. Like, it's not a very interactive game. There's really two touch points, one being the map and where you get out and put people out onto the, uh, the map and where you move around and put your training stations. And at three players, you honestly don't really bump into each other that much. You can all kind of go to your corners and just stay there and build out your empire. That changes at four. There's definitely more bumping into people and having people steal spots from you. Uh, The other big touch point being the beneficial deeds board when you're culling stuff out to get benefits. And again, at three, there's it doesn't scale the board at all. So there's still lots of people to put out there. So the smaller the player count, the definitely more multiplayer solitaire this game is. I will say, though, that, uh, yeah, I, I definitely prefer to play this one with a, with the Trade and Intrigue expansion over Vanilla. The Vanilla Beneficial Deeds board is a little on the dull side, and uh, the base game events are a little on the dull side versus the Trade and Intrigue events. So I think uh, Trade and Intrigue with the new board and the new events and not the uh, pick-up-and-deliver contracts is my preferred way to play.
1: Well, it's, I'm happy that you've uh, mined this game so much you figured out the optimal way to play, because if you look at the Board Game Geek page for this game... There's like a thousand different expansions to this game. It's wild. But oh I know a lot of those are promos from like the BGG store. I was there when you bought like six of them. Which I have never played. Right. There's just so much content in this game. I mean, your box is breaking at the seams. Oh, yeah. it's there. I've got a solid inch of box lift right now on it. <laughs> when we get back to person gaming, I think it'd be a fun night to play this and Toa. Just kind of circle back to some Euro games that are similar location, similar theme, but i've only played a limited amount of times or kind of have some negative feelings on it i'd like to kind of figure out how i feel about it so those are two games right i'd on. like to uh add to the front of the list
0: of certain factor i will say the the mod we found with trade and intrigue is scripted to a ridiculous level and it's really good like okay gotcha. literally like for drawing stuff out of the bag you click you, you just keep track of what you're supposed to be drawing and it auto shuffles your bag when you put stuff in there and then auto pulls them out shuffled oh so you gosh. just click the draw button and it pulls out the seven workers that you want to pull out and just does all of that stuff automatically. It's so cool.
1: That's wild. Yeah, some some TTS mods are just absolutely a dream to play with.
0: Yeah, that one is fantastic. It's one of the best I've seen. So even if we do it before, <laughs> the the table, I think we played this one in easily two thirds of the time of what it would have taken in person. It wow. was fast. That's great. Well, and then especially not shoving everything back into an inch and a half of box lift makes it a lot oh, easier. Yeah. Well, and so much of Orleans, too, is simultaneous play, right? You're all placing your pieces simultaneously, which also makes it for a really quick play.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to try. Let, let's let's maybe play this on uh, on Wednesday. It could be really fun.
0: Sounds great. So Orleans, the number 26 overall game on Board Game Geek, a game that's in my top 10 for sure by Reiner Stockhausen, Clemens Franz, published by TMG, and we rated that thing at a 3C on the mogul scale. There it is. So
1: last episode, our expansion episode, we intentionally cut out system games because we thought it'd be a little bit too much and kind of muddy the waters with our conversations on expansions because we don't really necessarily consider these expansions. They are, but they're more, they're something else. They're kind of in between a lifestyle game and board games. So we thought we'd take a little quick moment and discuss some of the system games that we really like and kind of what we think about it. So before we dial into our most favorite ones why don't we talk about the first question of what is a systems game or a system game pardon me all games have systems a system game as we define it is kind of a game with a lot of very similar expansions so let's take example like Lorenzo Agnifico. the base game pretty simple you could teach that to somebody but to throw the expansion in you're gonna have to actually explain kind of the new things as an amendment to the previous teach if you were to teach someone age of steam, kind of regardless of what map you choose, that's kind of age steam. And the the, the expansions there are different enough where they're like varied, but the rule set covers a lot of these different experiences versus kind of a, a more macroscopic, like this feels like an added on expansion. And a lot of these games also intrinsically kind of become lifestyle games.
0: Yeah. I think the thing that defines a system game to me is a game that has new content, same rules, Ends up in a different
1: game, and we say same rules, but like eighty five percent same rules, something along those lines.
0: Yeah, enough that you really only need to say, "Oh, hey, by the way, you can only grab yellow city, yellow cubes in the yellow cities," or something as minor as that. You're not adding in a separate teach onto there. You're just throwing in a couple of tiny rules tweaks. Or
1: the other thing about system games is they can actually be lighter than the previous version. So there can be both an expansion up and expansion down. Usually, the expansions is just more. But system games, they're the same, but different, different experiences, maybe more, more complex, different
0: player counts, something along those lines. So or it could be a case where it's just like, hey, here's a game with uh, this size map or and now we're going to play the same game on a map that's like a third of the size and it takes a third of the time. There you go. Exactly.
1: So why don't we talk a bit about some of our favorite ones of these? We're not going to be macroscopic and cover all of them. These are just the specific ones we like. But we have broken them down into three convenient categories for the listener's pleasure. How about that?
0: Yeah, the first category we want to talk about is sort of the most basic level of system games that we could come up with. That's a game where literally it is just it's the same game that just has an additional map. And the game plays out functionally exactly the same way. There might be a couple of little rules different, like, hey, when you cross the mountains, you have to pay an additional cost, or here's this additional mechanic that you have to add to it. But functionally, it's exactly the same game. There's just a replacement of the map or a replacement of the card deck, and you're playing the same game. Now, that may end up in a very different experience, but you don't need to reteach the game. And, and some of the examples we came out that supported this sort of basic style of game with just a few tweaks... The first thing that came to mind for me was Power Grid. The base game of Power Grid, once you learn that one, functionally, you can take all of these other maps, whether it's Germany or the U.S. or, I don't know, how many maps are there for Power Grid now, Jay? Yeah, there's everything. Japan, it's ridiculous. There's, There's a couple dozen different maps for Power Grid. And they end up playing out differently because they may be more interconnected or less interconnected or they might be super expensive or super cheap so you can grow like crazy. And it ends up being ultimately a different game with a different map even though you're playing with something that's almost identical rules across the board yeah another one that kind of does the
1: same thing and is in the same size box is concordia concordia has a whole bunch of different maps now and i'm not gonna and i'm intentionally ignoring the venus expansion so don't at me on the internet about this but uh (laughs) Like Concordia, I have like six maps and they're just kind of tailored for different play counts. You know, there's different choke points. There's a handful of places you can build boats differently, but that's like really the only different rules difference. So it just kind of fluxes for the number of players. And there's a certain distribution of uh, of, of the different locations.
0: So they work better for certain player counts. Well, and like you said, don't don't at me at this for this, but I never really drew the parallel between Concordia and Power Grid in that fashion before.
1: What, the, uh, the, the, the the comparison that they have a bunch of different maps or that they're the same size box?
0: Well, uh, well, both of those, really. But the fact that at the end of the day, they're kind of a map-driven game that varies both player count and size of the game and experience just by where they kind of put choke points on the map. And they've got kind of these trade routes sort of an idea. Right. Yeah, it's exactly makes sense. I'd never put those together. Making a bit of a left turn on that one, I would also put a game like Legendary into that. I'm referring not to like Legendary Encounters like the Alien game or the Firefly game or whatever else. I'm talking about just baseline Legendary, the superhero one. That's the uh, deck builder style game, because when you add in like Guardians of the Galaxy, really, you're just adding in different baddies and different missions and some different heroes that you can kind of splice in as you see fit. And wow, they've come out with dozens of (laughs) expansions to Legendary. Kind of for every little corner of the Marvel universe or X-Men universe or whatever other comic book universe you want to include as part of that. They can make money out of anything. There's
1: so many different comic books and everything and different timelines for each comic book. And they have so much stuff for that. It's wild.
0: And it's fun just kind of mix and matching those things. So we were Guardians of Galaxies along with Iron Man long before (laughs) the latest Marvel movies inside Legendary.
1: So then moving on to kind of some of the intermediate differences. These are ones where they have new maps, but maybe a few rules iterations that kind of change the gameplay experience, but still, I would say still fall into the, the the system where 85, 95% of the rules are the exact same. Um, the first one that we're going to start with is I think my favorite of this and one of my favorite system games, Age of Steam. Age of Steam has something like 100 maps out for it and the variety of play between one and the other is just amazing based on changing a slight amount of rules, you know, and they have everything. They have some nationalization. They have some, you can give up a certain amount of tracks to other companies. You can use other people's companies. There's these different action things, but ultimately it's all age of steam. It's
0: not age of steam with this map. It's age of steam. I would call those scenario rules in this middle level right. thing where each, each scenario has its own set of unique rules to it. And ultimately a different age of steam map, essentially a different age of steam scenario. It's age of steam with the scenario that it's on the moon. Right. Or it's in the US or it's in Western Canada or it's in Japan. Still Age of Steam, but that scenario means that there's different things like like these the the, what was it, the Scandinavia map we were talking about pretty recently with Craig Taylor in Age of Steam, where you had to deliver things only to the color city that like you had to match the color of the delivery to the color of the city or something like that, or
1: how yeah, it's either that or Korea or something along the lines. But that's what it was. It was one Korea. tool, they like deliver different cubes and then they convert to another different type of cube. So you can keep on like setting up this big long train of different, different deliveries. But that's just completely different than Rust Belt. But to learn that different rules is like a five minute conversation after somebody knows how to play Rust Belt. You could probably even teach Age of Steam on whatever map you want and just say, This
0: is Age of Steam. Well, and very tiny rules differences make a radical difference in how the game plays out, right? Like in terms of money, right? Is money super tight or is money super prolific? Because in there are some maps where there's just no way to make money. There's like a tax when you start making too much money in Aegis team. A particular scenario might relax that. So it's impossible to go bankrupt. Whereas there are other ones where it's impossible not to go bankrupt. Right. It's just king of the hill whoever's left
1: last on. Is the person who won? You know, the only person who hasn't gone bankrupt.
0: Taking that idea of scenario rule sets to an almost ridiculous level is the Memoir Forty Four and Commands and Colors families of games, and I'm I lump those together because functionally Memoir Forty Four is just a uh, you know my first Commands and Colors game, (laughs) I would say, and it's really it's the same system. You have like movement rules and you have shooting rules and so forth. But when you have a particular set of rules, each scenario has their own way of setting up that's unique. There's Maybe a lot of terrain. Maybe there's a little bit of terrain. Maybe the rule is that you win when you capture everybody, or the rule is that it's done when you get these three choke points, or the rule is that you win when you're out of pieces. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can do it, but functionally, it's the same game. It's the same system. It's just that scenario has its own set of rules that may have been included just to make it historically accurate.
1: Right. Yeah, no, and I think that's probably a thing. We can't really speak to this, but for a lot of war games, at least from my outside looking in through the looking glass of like Twitter, it seems like there's a lot of games that are just systems based on that. So it's like a combat commander being a perfect example where it seems like they have every single war ever underneath combat commander. You know, there's every single interaction, which is cool because you just learn one game and you get to interact with so many
0: different scenarios. You know what I really want, Jake? I really want them to take the Twilight Struggle system, which it has been done a little bit, right? I mean, because there is also the, you know, the what 1960 making of the president, which is super duper similar. Well, there's also the war on terror supposed to be similar to Well, I couldn't tell you that one. I'm not familiar with that at all. And uh, (laughs) any commentary is going to help me how non-familiar I am with that. What I want is I want that system, which I really like made into a world war II game, a Mm -hmm. card driven game using the twilight struggle system, but world war II scenario. So it's like a prequel to twilight struggle. Oh, that would be great. I want that. That sounds awesome. That's uh, the intermediate maps. We're calling these scenario games. And then finally, the big daddy, the advanced ones, which are really they're completely different games. There's a core rule set, but these scenarios now start deviating to the point where the games play out completely differently and they may actually have a real teach to make them differently. But there's still a lot of tropes and mechanisms that are so similar to the others that it's just kind of like, is it A or is it B? Oh, it's B. Okay, got it. (laughs) Right. Jake, why don't you tell us about what we're talking about here? And the perfect example of that is being 18xx. There's
1: even a website out there. I can't remember the the exact link to it, but it just compares two different games and gives all the either ors of all their decisions. Is this restrictive track or, pardon me, semi-restrictive track? Is it a permissive track game? What's the difference between those two? And then it kind of just does that with everything. You know, can he sell shares in the first stock round? And with these just if-then questions, either ors. You can figure out what games which out of it. It's 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 wild. But yeah, 18xx is a perfect poster child with this, where some of the strategy and a lot of the like small little rule things like tracking and train shuffling and all those skills are present in all the games. But they're so different just based on capitalization, different maps, everything. It's just so different between one to another.
0: For example, look at two games like 1889, which is. About as small and vanilla as you can possibly find. Compared next door to a game like 1880, which is kind of in the same part of the world, but whoo, those games play out different and have really different rule sets. Right. Yet they fall under the same system because if you know how to play 18XX, you'll at least
1: have a shared pool of knowledge going between one game to the other. It's just in a very amount of different experiences that are incredibly varied. It's almost kind of similar to like. Modern Euro games, you know, like whenever you approach a Euro game that you kind of know is midweight, you might be able to like grok what's going on with some of the iconography because you've played so many Euro games before. It's kind of like that, but on steroids. If like Shem Phillips of the of the series where they use all the same art and all the same iconography where it's like, yeah, you're playing a completely different game, but you're resting on a bit of shared knowledge pool
0: from previous games. So you don't have to do it. Maybe a little bit more than that than (laughs) in 18XX, but I think you nailed it. I mean, the iconography between Raiders of the North Sea and Paladins of the West Kingdom functionally is really similar to each other. So, and a lot of Euro games understanding the iconography is half the battle. So if you walk into that game, understanding the iconography it's a much, much, much quicker rules teach. Hadn't really thought of those being system games before, but and they're not. Yeah, we're not we're not putting them under here, but it's it's kind of explaining what 18xx is to some of some normie, normie friends. Now, comically, one of the things that I'm going to edit out is a conversation that we had that you're not going to hear. Where I brought up the uh, how different 1817 and 1822 are, and Jake went, I don't know, they're pretty similar. Right. They both have Lawson. They both are incremental cap. There's different size companies. Whereas to my point, I was thinking, well, one's really about crazy financial shenanigans and the other one is about weird auctions and not spending up all your money and saving it for future rounds. And so they ultimately play out really different. But to the point, it's amazing for games that I perceive to be wildly different are actually crazily same in some other aspects because part of the same advanced system. Yeah, that's kind of our conversation on system games.
1: We're big fans of them. Not all of them. I think sometimes they can go too far into like lifestyle games like Magic the Gathering. And I'm not super interested in going back to playing 40K only. I like variety in my games. So 18XX for me fits that perfect niche. It's a financial game, which I love. It's really heavy, which I love. There's a shared knowledge pool in the game. So I can kind of move around and get a lot of variety while still kind of playing the same game, which is why I just love 18XX so much.
0: And I think you also got to be a little bit careful to not be stereotyped when you're into system games because. You know, how many times have we been accused of just liking 18xx? It's like, no, Jake only just likes 18xx. (laughs) Well, and that's the thing about these things is that, okay, if somebody doesn't like the system, they don't just not like one game in your closet. They don't like a whole shelf. Yes. And that's the whole thing.
1: (laughs) And I know some people who don't like CZ, for example. That's a pretty polarizing game in the 18xx community. But I still go to get 18xx conventions and can still play a whole bunch of different games there. You know, not liking one or two titles in the catalog is different than not liking a system.
0: And and I would also say, too, if you like the system, odds are a game that you air quotes don't like <laughs> in that system is still a B minus at worst, right? Because it depends.
1: I think some people I would agree with that because I'd still rather play like CZ than some new
0: midweight euro. Right. You'd rather play CZ than Wingspan. Yeah, for sure. Oh,
1: for sure. Without it, without a doubt, yeah.
0: But having said that, you'd also rank that pretty low in your list of favorite system
1: games. Yes, I would certainly have Wingspan probably be one of the lower tier 18XX games I've played. So that's still showing <laughs> how, how 18 Wingspan. Oh, did I seriously say that? Leave it in.
0: I'm leaving that in. There it is. <laughs> Jeez, oh, that's great. Yeah, you you upgrade from the 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 pigeon train to the eagle train. Eagle train. The eagle train takes out all the
1: pigeon chains. That's the new. That's the new level of rusting that would actually make that game interesting and innovative. Oops. I might have to edit that part out. <laughs> Let's talk about a game that is the biggest system. <laughs> I see what you did there. Thank you. So we have both been into Dungeons and Dragons for a while now, I'd say. Um, I, it actually is one of the big reasons I got into board games is through Dungeons and Dragons. That was something I was into way before I was into board games. But with what's going on with COVID, I actually have had a D&D group reform um, out of people I never would have thought So I thought it'd be kind of fun to talk about it and just kind of just kind of wax a little bit poetically about our thoughts on D&D specifically. So if you're not interested in, please skip.
0: There's no more board games. We're going to talk about D&D from now on. So let's do it, Mark. It's funny. We've never really talked that much about D&D on this podcast. We've mentioned it, that we've played some stuff. And I think we've even chatted a little bit of some of our experience, especially at like conventions that we've gone to. But We've never actually talked about kind of our personal experiences with Dungeons and Dragons and decided it'd be fun to actually kind of deviate off into that because there's a huge amount of crossover there that it, I, most board gamers I know also have or did or are playing d d at some level. Yes. And I think the reason why we did it is I personally don't like podcasts that aren't
1: focused and I don't want this to become a DD podcast because I would say, correct me if I'm wrong here, Mark, but you are much more a board gamer than you are
0: a role playing person, right? You know, it depends on what corner of my life you look at, right? Because back in high school, literally every weekend I got together with a group of my friends and played d for 12 straight hours every Saturday. That was my great. That was my like junior high and high school life. So there's been parts of my life where I focus literally only on D&D and I went through probably a, geez, 20 year window there where I hadn't played D&D and I sat back and I went, you know what I would love to do? I would love to play D&D again as an adult with kind of the understanding of what's actually important rather than <laughs> just a kid who wants to get all the cool stuff and <laughs> so forth and actually play it out and have interesting characters. And I feel really blessed that I've had the opportunity to do that over the past couple of years.
1: Well, it's a very political answer. You didn't answer my question. You did very well there. Because I would say I'm definitely a board gamer, first and foremost.
0: Yes. Okay. I did sort of uh, lose
1: the lose the thread on what exactly you're asking. The real thing we're supposed to do here is the American spirit. No, I, I completely agree. But um, <laughs> it's kind of the, it's, it's, we're, we're at a point in time in our life where, yes, we both used to be role players. But I think now we're definitely considering ourselves board gamers. Because if there's ever a night where it's me, you, John and Dennis and Kirk, we're not going to play D&D. It'd be like scheduled we play D&D. But I think the thing that would maximize our enjoyment as a group would be board games.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. I definitely love playing D&D. I get really excited when there is a special D&D night scheduled out. But given the choice, uh, side by side, I am going to pick board games the vast majority of the times. Now, if it's a special event kind of thing where somebody's really got something experience planned up for us, you know, hey, <laughs> that sounds great. I'm all in. But yes, I am primarily a board gamer. Gotcha.
1: So why don't you explain a little bit of your experiences in the past with uh, d and I know you mentioned it briefly. They used to play for 12 yeah. hours in middle school and high school. What would that look like?
0: Oh, goodness. Okay, I'm going to out how old I am right now. D&D second edition back <laughs> in the early 80s probably about 1980 is the first time i played DD at a sleepover at my friend john's house where i don't think we slept for about two days straight over an entire weekend just playing keep on the borderlands endlessly that began a six solid year love affair with playing it every weekend i was i was the dungeon master and to this day i still am kind of the dungeon master because i am a treasure trove of worthless knowledge and that's a good attribute to have for a dungeon master yeah I have actually played D&D kind of a surprisingly little amount. I mean, I've mostly almost always dungeon mastered. That's something that, uh, you know, a shoe I put right back on as I'm playing now again. I'm mostly dungeon master these days. So my
1: experience is very similar. I started off in middle school with a friend who at the time I thought we were playing D&D, but we were literally just like playing pretend with my friend making up rules on the fly with dice, which was pretty amazing that my friend ended up doing that. And if you're listening to this, Ben, grats, that was awesome. And so we played that. And then I brought it up to my uncle who is about the same age as you, I think exactly the same age as you. So we had a very similar experience with d and in middle school and said, oh God, that'd be great to get back into it. And this is right when fourth edition had just came out, I think, or it was just about to come out. And so we jumped into that hard, which looking back on things, I think I attribute a lot of my anger towards D&D based on anger towards fourth edition so then we ended up playing a lot in high school and we even got in situations where like i would lie about what dnd stood for because i was embarrassed about people knowing that i played dnd but had a good <laughs> group of friends who played it a lot and actually ended up playing a decent amount in college as well had a fifth edition group that i played in college and then at all of the gen cons that i've been to um i think i've been to like eight of them now or eight or nine i was much more into, into rpgs when i went there compared to board games. So we'd play a whole bunch of different systems and we try to find out different systems in the dark times when we only had 4e before 5e came out. And yeah, I've played a lot of different RPG systems, but I am somewhat similar to you where there's kind of two different tiers. If I'm playing with other people who are also into d and
0: I am not the DM. I'm not perma DM. I'm actually usually a pretty good ca- player character, which is awesome. I would agree with that too. I mean, that's generally what I'm speaking of. If there's somebody that's a longer, that that's more into DMing than I am and has a campaign going and has invited me along to that, I'm more than happy to be a character and enjoy yes. what they've put together. Yes. I'm not, not a perma DM,
1: but if I'm ever playing with anybody that I've brought into D&D, no matter how long it was with them, they would never step up to DM. I was always the DM, which is fine and fun and no big deal. So it's kind of fun now that I'm actually playing with my friends from high school that I wouldn't be normally playing with as a player character instead of the DM. So I'm having a good time, not having to do a lot of work. So.
0: Yeah, I find it really interesting hearing your experience with coming up through the editions are so wildly different than my experience through it, because I jumped from second edition to fifth edition. I'm aware there's this thing called third edition, and I'm aware this thing that everybody hates called fourth edition, but I don't know anything about either one of them.
1: Yeah, fourth edition was just crunch. It was like literally like a miniature game and like, wow, but D&D.
0: Right. It was not good. Like looking back at second edition, which what I would say is kind of the other glory days of D&D. It was it wasn't a very cohesive system. That's the way I would sort of describe second edition is there was a lot of stuff in there. And there was there was like little tables and rules for every weird little thing you could possibly do. And there wasn't a lot of cohesiveness to any of it. So. You know, you there was like pages and pages and pages in the rule books for encumbrance. If you wanted to have a campaign where you cared about how many gold pieces you could actually carry and nobody ever played with it. But it was always this thing that was there. There was all this unbelievable amount of, well, you add four to this, then minus two to that. Then you add plus three because of this and then minus seven because of that. And then this guy is carrying that and he's standing on a ledge. So plus seven and plus, you know, and so finally, you ultimately ended up and went, right, after using a calculator, I don't think I can actually hit them no matter what I do. So never mind. I'll run. All right,
1: moving on. Running on.
0: Yeah. Right. But the most defining attribute, I'll say, of the second edition era was uh, I played D&D smack dab in the middle of the satanic panic. And Jake, <laughs> I wish you could have seen what that was like because it was so bizarre. Yeah, it doesn't quite make sense to me. Like I've seen the documentaries and all that stuff,
1: but it, it's just such a weird thing to be angry about. Like fiction existed. You know, like Dune was oh, a completely. thing in the 60s. It's so weird that in like the 70s, late 70s and early 80s was the time of it, right? Or was it late 90s? Or I mean, oh, early
0: 90s? Oh, it was late 70s, early
1: 80s. Okay, I was right. So, yeah, it was just so weird that somehow Dungeons and Dragons was the thing that got thrown out there. It comes from such a clear delineation of like Lord of the Rings, but more. You get to be the characters. It's so weird that they jumped to Satanism.
0: Yeah, literally, you had to be a, almost a little quiet about the fact you played it because, well, first off, people thought you were a nerd, which was maybe true. It was, I think it, it was still the truth. when I went to, which was a while <laughs> ago. But and, and the other fact is, like, literally, there was big chunks of the population that literally thought you were trying to raise demons in your basement if you were playing D&D. God, I can only wish. <laughs> I
1: only wish that was true. So with some of that, um, let's talk about some of our favorite characters that we've had. I'll start. One of my favorite characters that I have right now is actually currently the character I'm playing right now. We are playing a fifth edition. We're just playing Lost Minds of Fallen Delver, which is bad because I've DM'd it, I think, twice now, twice or three times, which is actually a pretty good starting campaign. The issue being, I I know everything. So how how am I going to try to fix that? I tried to make the dumbest character I could. So I decided to make myself a kind of, for lack of better terms, redneck swamp person. So I, I was watching a lot of like, TV shows about like gators, and I thought I'd make a character like that. So my guy's name is Skip apostrophe H A U, and he's a two levels of ranger and one level of rogue, multi-class. And he just likes to just fight beasts and just trying to get rich through, through all that stuff. And it works out great because I can have some knowledge of like the woods, even though I chose swamp as my favorite biome. Which is not a very good choice. It's it's just fun to actually like go go through and be playing with these different people.
0: Likewise, too. Doesn't he have a like affinity for beasts or something like that? Well, yeah, I've i, I chose usually the beast non-useful. One. Oh, it's not good.
1: There's like no beasts ever. I'm like, we're about to fight like an owl bear, and I'm like, is this a beast? And he's like, nope, it's a celestial creature. Sorry. <laughs> I have no help with the tracking thing. But it's fun. It's 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 he's a really fun character. I speak with a southern accent the whole time. Got some different feelings towards elves and stuff, which is always fun. And it's been fun to see the characters grow. What are some of your favorite characters,
0: Mark? Oh, again, most of the time I've Dungeon Mastered, so a lot of my character experience has been more along the lines of preconstructs that I've played, so it's going to be maybe more about some of the more interesting preconstructed characters I've played, but I did play for quite a period of time back in high school. I played a paladin, which was just stupidly overpowered and probably never actually followed the rules of lawful good like I should (laughs) have, and... You basically took all the good parts of being a paladin. Oh, by the way, I'm sure I had plenty of doctored roles to make sure that I had the 18 charisma and all the other attributes you need oh, to be a course. paladin. And I had, you know, a uh, plus five glowing vorporal sword and blah, 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 you know, <laughs> all those ridiculous overpowered dumb things you do when you play kid D&D. Yeah, that was my paladin. But having said that, lots of good adventures with him. Probably my favorite one was going through the Shrine of the Kuatoa. You ever play that one, Jake? No, I haven't. Shrine of the Kuotoa was uh they're, they're like aquatic elves. Ew. And they have like this weird fish god called Blibdool Poop that you're trying to fight at the end. That, yeah. Yeah, that's a cool old school
1: classic adventure. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, I've I've totally fallen out of d and I know they've been like reprinting a lot of those. But when I was into fifth edition in college, right when I like came out, I haven't been into it since. So I haven't really seen anything besides like Vandelver, but they're reprinting a whole bunch of those old classic fifth edition scenarios, which is really
0: cool. Let me tell you, there is a company out there right now that is reproducing a lot of these things that is reincarnating these original old school adventures. It's Goodman Games is going out and they've made three hardcover books so far. Uh, One is Into the Borderlands. Another is The Isle of Dread. And the third one is Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. Oh, cool. Oh, God, these things are so great. They're like big, fat, one inch thick books of what was a, I don't know, 15 page pamphlet back in the day (laughs) it's the most completionist ridiculous thing like they've included a printing of every single revision of that that's ever been made so literally like there's six versions so it's been updated different systems and different new art and blah 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 there's versions of that inside the book then the crowning glory is at the end There's a version of it that's translated into 5e so that you can play that old edition new. Just for our completionist's sake, I'm collecting all these books because they're, number one, a huge memory of my childhood. And number two, they're so beautifully produced that I absolutely love them. Gotcha. That's awesome. Yeah, I should really get into it. But the
1: issue is, it just goes to the thing is, I don't have a group that play D&D. And maybe that's changing with the current group, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But it's just... I have a board game group. I'm a board game player. You know, I'd much rather do that with you guys. And I don't know if I'd want to spend the effort to convert into that, especially with the benefits that we get out of board games. But maybe with my current group, if they actually want to keep on going, it'll be fun to kind of get back into D&D in some some limited way.
0: So to me, the uh, most interesting part about playing again as an adult and getting back into it. And I think a lot of this is also enabled by the rules changes for fifth edition is now to me, it's more about role playing than it is about just swinging a sword, right? And I, like you, creating what's objectively a stupid character. Right. <laughs> I, I find those really bizarre characters to be the most interesting ones to play. So, like, most of the d playing I've done has been at Gen Con over the past couple of years. And I always do pre-constructed adventures where you're, you, you know, you got a table full of characters, pick one. And I kind of purposely make a point of picking the oddballest one out there on the table. Just the one that like nobody else is picking because it's too weird. Like a lizard person that is into tinkering. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I've I've played female barred dwarfs. I've played uh, one of the more interesting one was one that was in like a ancient Greek pantheon kind of a world. And I was a half Medusa. Hmm. <gasps> that was really fun. <laughs>
1: Sweet. Yeah. I've played so many of those. One of my favorites was I was a, like a skippy type character from uh Firefox. I was like a, a frog person. I was an engineer, in like a steampunk spaceship, And it was the best. I just didn't want to get in combat. I was just running around fixing the ship. It was the best thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. And to me, that is, uh, that is the part I'm really enjoying playing this as an adult is the interesting storytelling that happens around to it more than just, min maxing combat yeah which is so funny because i think that also is maybe because we play board games like if
1: i want to do a dungeon crawl i'm not going to do D. &D. you know it's like not that fun to do combat in that i'd rather play gloomhaven i'd rather play descent i'd rather play the 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 star wars descent whatever the heck that one's called you know there's better games that do that than D d and if i want to min max something there's better games that do that Right, and to me, like D and D is more fun when your characters are flawed and interacting with other characters. So, like for example, my character Skip was very distrusting of elves to start off with. I know it's super basic, I know, but it's been fun to. I, don't, I did not know this, but my entire friend group thought elves are just the dopest, and we have like three half elves and two full elves, and like a in a group of seven. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's been fun to like see my character change and evolve with time as is interacting with all these people he's starting to like, um, which is really fun. And the same thing too, uh, there's another character in my group, which we'll talk about in my current group in just a moment, who is a, a, a seeker of truth and he's some warlock cleric that's – I don't know warlocks, but he has some patron that's supposed to be like some seeker of truth or something along those lines. And so he, he he's kind of like an eccentric weirdo and – refers to all of us as like his 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 disciples or something along those lines is his passion for truth and it's just fun that's so much more fun to me than like decapitating some goblins which i can assure you skip is very good at skip is very good at killing people but that's not fun i, I like i like talking about the swamp and all that stuff
0: so wrestling gators and in my current campaign the most DD i'm playing right now is actually with my family and uh, like you we are going through the lost Minds of Phandelver which is for those not into D&D, it's it's the adventure that comes with the basic box and it's got good pre-selects. It's a good it's a good introduction to D&D. It kind of gives you a taste for a lot of the different things that are in there. And it's pretty open. You you don't have to get railroaded. It Seems like there's a lot of ways right. to stumble through the
1: campaign in interesting ways.
0: Right. And it's fun with my kids because because they don't know any of these kind of previous D&D min-maxing, you know, just hack and slash ideas to them. They're really more about the role playing and just trying to outsmart the adventure rather than just brute force their way through it. And that's really cool to see.
1: Yeah, that's the exact same way my current campaign is. My campaign is with my high school friends. So it kind of like we're still really good friends. It's been really weird, but um, I've stayed very close with a lot of my high school friends. But a lot of the people in high school that I played with are not the people that are currently in the group. It's actually like a completely different group of people, but we were all friends in high school and we always try to get these certain people to play, but they were never super interested for whatever reason. Right. And now they've started playing it. It's been really fun seeing these people come out of their, their, their skin with this game and kind of realize the amazing opportunities it has. And they're the exact same thing as your, your family, Mark. They, they just want to role play. They don't like where we can kill goblins really well and we can like fight dragons or whatever, but they're not super interested in that. They'd rather like figure out some to, diplomatic way out of the scenario through doing that. And I think that's through a decent amount of their characters being a little strong, stronger willed than I think other people are. And a lot of people are kind of skittish. I know Skip definitely is. So it's kind of fun seeing that aspect. And the fact that we like spent an entire session with like out the DM really talking, we were just chatting in the bar when we first met each other and just having hoots and hollers over that, which I found way more rewarding than just going through and killing a dragon.
0: Hearing you talk about the campaign you're having right now, I know that over the time we've known each other, you've had a uh, it's complicated relationship with Dungeons and Dragons, and it seems to be kind of directly related to how combat oriented the current campaign is.
1: Right, and that's not saying I dislike combat. It's just to me, it feels so jarring, and some of the assumed aspects about combat in D and D is just very annoying for me. Like, so for example, I'll talk about one example that sticks out very hard in my mind whenever it comes to what I dislike about D and D combat. We're at a convention. And we're like just about, we just rolled initiatives and we're a couple of turns in. And this guy whose characters must be 80, 90 feet away from me is trying to hold a meeting with all of our characters so we can discuss how to combat out this scenario. And it's like, A, that's like really bad role-playing because like we're in the combat already. We're not going to like pause and min-max this. <laughs> we're going to have to get into the <laughs> and just kind of, sorry, Mark, you have to cut that out. Get in the <laughs> and kind of like cut and figure out what's
0: going on, right? You're already in it. Time for discussion was a while ago, and this is when, as a dungeon master, whoever the enemy is, there starts throwing rocks, right. <laughs> or starts launching arrows, or starts breathing fire, or does something that ma- lets the characters know very explicitly that the meeting time is over. Right, and it got to this point. This guy just, and it, we were being a little too polite to him. It was a, it
1: was a convention game, so you're trying to be polite. We got to the point where, like, my uncle had to say to this guy, like, "Are you going to like let me play my character? Can we just do this?" And so that's been my like kind of main goal and i told the dm this it's not just me being a rogue i said to my friend ben hey i'm going to try to do dumb shit that i think my character would do that's bad dnd i keep on breaking up the group not in like a exclusive exclusionary way but just like my guy didn't like a certain other character so i waited outside with a handful of other people and that made a handful of more interesting scenarios happened right like we got overrun by some spiders and i got attacked so we had to like figure out a way that how long it's going to be for them to get there and it made it so much more interesting and real and kind of raw than just this hyper optimized group of seven people walking from one encounter to another. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean encounter just a combat way, but encounter in like a RP way too. You know, it's kind of fun seeing how certain characters can kind of step up and into certain aspects.
0: Kind of to that point too. Some of the convention games are a weird angle in of themselves. The one thing I didn't know going into convention gaming is they tend to be pretty combat heavy because you generally only have a four hour window that you're going to do something meaningful. And like, if you made it a full puzzle dungeon, you aren't going to get very far in that dungeon in that four hours. So they tend to be a little on the hack and slash side. Conversely, the most valuable experiences I've had with convention games are the ones where it isn't just hack and slash, where it is a little puzzlier. You do have a DM that's really putting a lot of juice into it. Like, like they're up and they're acting. They have costumes with them. They... <laughs> They're, right. they're allowing you to kind of just try these crazy things and they're rolling with it. And those have been great experiences other than just something that's like, hey, hey it's a, kind of an on the rails. You go here and then you fight some people and you go there and you fight some people and then you fight the king and right. you're dead. Well, and then it goes to these situations where my uncle and I always have this argument. He thinks 5e is
1: too easy, which he's probably right. If you play correctly, it's like really hard to get killed. But I've done some things in scenarios with 5e that would easily toady party kill. All you have to do is just like focus in a certain way and and have the players act correctly. Maybe you wouldn't walk as a seven person phalanx every single place you went.
0: Well, and I find too that, especially with a smaller party, that um, I'm probably as a uh, somewhat new to 5e DM, I don't always do a good job at scaling things appropriately. So it's a case that, you know, as long as they kind of do everything right and roll fine, they're going to survive but uh if one person goes down then all of a sudden they're going to lose cuz sure. they're barely holding on right i would not advise to do this with your
1: family but one thing i always find interesting is once a character drops and goes unconscious the people that they're fighting completely give up on them especially if there's something like that's a pack animal so like let's say you're fighting a whole bunch of wolves let's say right and mm-hmm. one of your characters drops now why would the entire pack then give up on that person who dropped and is going to let them roll saving throws for the next 3 rounds and proceed on to the person that's a threat to them. That makes no sense to me, because I feel like what they do is they'd actually try to drag that body away because they got their food or whatever, right? Or take sure. that as ghouls, or take that as any, like, pack animal. I always find that so weird. And then on top of that, let's say you're in a, like, throes of war situation, and not to get too gory or anything, but you hear about this all the time in the news. Some guy didn't know that the, fu- the guy was knocked out and just kept on punching him. Why would that not happen in a combat with some dro? You know, they're it's their it's their life, it's your life or the other guy's. Why would the person who does knock down somebody immediately give up and run to the
0: next person? I feel like people don't use coup de gras enough. Right. They don't they want to make sure you do not get back up again. Right. Which makes sense to that level. Player characters don't ever just go, ah, he's down. I'm just going to walk away. Mm -hmm. No. Now you finish the guy off. Right. And so it's just it's just
1: wild to me that people get put in these situations. And then they also get this thing where they're always walking seven people really close. So you need to put a whole bunch of like area of effect attacks or something on them or something. But it's just. I, I find I love hard role-playing and really de-optimized scenarios that you just got stuck in. So like for one, I was really mad with my, we went to Thunder Tree and, and Fandelver and my DM was playing the Druid. There just a complete dick and I hated him and it was funny. It was a bunch of inside jokes, but my characters really didn't like him. So he didn't like to interact with them. My character thought that he was being really unreasonable and stuff along those lines. So I would kind of hang out on the outside. So as we were doing this, I ended up wandering around with a friend while they were having their thing, just in the building over. And we were attacked by spiders. And we got to a point where I was about to die because my character didn't like this other person. In any other D&D scenario, I would have played with somebody who would have said, no, stay with us. To me, I'd much rather have Skip die and have a cool, interesting um, thing about Skip running away from the group or whatever and just like dicking off and what that means to the group than always be in a scenario that clearly my guy doesn't like something doesn't like this other guy. He's just going to sit sit on his hands the entire conversation and let them get their way.
0: You know, it's weird. So one thing, because of all of those interesting role-playing experiences, things, Jake, and how you talked about how how to handle death and so forth. One thing I'm really excited about trying to get played in the near future is I really want to play the Expanse RPG for a couple of reasons. Number one, I love the intellectual property it's based on. I think it's a really interesting story. And number two, I think it's an interesting system that at the end of the day, fighting in space is probably fatal even for something minor. It's not based on how many hit points you have. It's based on how much luck you have. And you spend luck to do different things. Like you spend luck to do feats. Like if I want to, uh, you know, float down this hall and twist and shoot at something and grab this handle as it goes by and drag myself in, well, I roll against the amount of luck. And when your luck runs out is when you die, not when you're out of hit points and out of strength. And it sort of categorizes the fact that if you want to be really cautious and really careful, you can conserve your luck for other times when you really need it or if you just go around doing dumb crap all the time, that you're going to be running really low on luck, and you're probably going to die a little bit quicker. And it focuses a little bit more on cleverness and ingenuity of role-playing than it does just about combat. And I think that sounds really interesting.
1: Agreed, especially pairing that with such an awesome intellectual property. I mean, that's going to be really cool.
0: Well, yeah, and technology-based where you're, you're hacking and you're piloting ships and stuff like that versus just trying to do something very anachronistic is also going to be a nice change of pace.
1: So I think that's probably been enough D&D and RPG ranting. Let us know if you like this. I don't think we'll keep on doing it. I don't think I can gather my thoughts on D&D as much as I can on board games. Um, and I just don't really play that much, you know, <laughs> like right, I'm, I'm an amateur when it comes to RPGs. I've been doing it for a long, long, long time, but it's also... The, the, have you seen how much D&D has changed? That's like five years. You know, it's just wild how normal it's become.
0: Well, yeah, and you're, you're not automatically branded as a uh, untouchable nerd anymore if you play it. That's the weirdest change. Yeah, so whatever PR they've been doing has been going great.
1: So, yeah, just let us know what you think about it. And I think that's probably been a pretty long episode, Mark, so we we'll would probably wrap it up.
0: It has. Jake, what are you excited about playing this week? What are you looking forward to? I am
1: excited to look at my train games and set them up on my table and then put them on the shelf and never touch
0: them again that sounds like an awesome way to spend a week um (laughs) i don't know that i'm i don't know that i'm gonna get my goals accomplished but um i got a big hankering to actually get out and play arkwright something that's been on my shelf of shame for too long and i'm gonna start making that happen i'm boning up on the rules this week for that so that i can actually get an online arkwright game rolling heck yeah dude consider me in all right well that should be fun so we've been the gaming moguls good night everybody good night everybody i'm mark that was jake We'll talk to you next week. Bye.
1: This has been the Gaming Moguls podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, Guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at GamingMoguls.com or mark at GamingMoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend.